today we're looking at transforming our experiences and in particular we're looking at transforming our experiences of adversity and of suffering okay no no uh easy task today to talk about those things so let's stand for the reading of scripture let's start by looking at the word of God here we go God will not give you anything you cannot handle it's uh, I've actually left off the reference for that oh it's not actually a scripture So today we're going to do a call and response that's a little different. I'm going to say this is not the word of God for us today. And you're all going to say? Grab a seat. It's not often we start a sermon with a non-scripture, is it? Today's different. It's a little different because today I want to start by just making a case for why you should never say that ever again to anybody. Where have we got this from? Where has this idea come from? Well, there is a scripture that sounds a little bit like it. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. But notice that the scripture is talking about testing and it's talking about temptation. Most importantly, the, the point here in this scripture, the point here in Corinthians is the same as what most of the New Testament writers are trying to make. God is faithful. Even in your unfaithfulness, God is faithful. But like Chinese whispers, where it starts somewhere and it starts working its way through a crowd, the same has happened with this scripture. And the sentence has morphed and it has become known as God will not give you anything you can't handle. It's this pithy, common, bumper-sticker theology sort of platitude. It's used on Instagram posts. It's printed on tacky coffee mugs, on on faux leather um, journal covers. And it kind of sounds right, doesn't it? Like, I think we want it to sound right. We want it to be true. But it isn't true. And more harmfully than those sort of more sort of pithy platitude kind of ways it's given to people who are going through tough trials as as a piece of advice and a, and a comment of hey carry on going I mean it's given to parents after the loss of their chil- the children it's given to couples after their businesses don't recover and they end up having to be selling their house on mortgagey sales It's given to a young person as they sit with the weight of anxiety or depression deep in their bones, wondering how they're ever going to make that pain go away. It's given to those walking through the grief of losing a loved one, saying goodbye to someone who they love. It's probably been given to the families of those of innocent people in our city who on Thursday were shot by a gunman. The families where a dad left home that work and didn't, that morning and didn't come home. God will not give you anything you can't handle. It sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds like a good statement. It sounds like it's true, but it's not. It is a lie. It's a heresy. It's wrong belief. And here's why. It's good this morning, isn't it? <laughs> Felt the temperature change about five minutes ago. Firstly, here's why it's wrong. God doesn't give bad things to anyone. 
James 1 verse 17 says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father. Whatever is good and perfect. God does not wish horrible things on any of his creation or in retribution because you deserve it. God doesn't send those things along because he wants to teach you a lesson. Who could speak of a father who is good if that's the way that they dealt with their children? God is not issuing out tragedies. He's not issuing out wars. He's not issuing out hardships and cancer and death. God is not dealing out abusive relationships or bad bosses or financial hardship. What God is handing out is himself. God has shown up to that what we cannot handle ourselves. God has shown up to a broken world that is desperately in need of a saviour. God has shown up as a redeemer to bring about redemption. God is the great physician, the great healer. And he's found in our most needing space of life, literally our living and our dying. God has made a way for all of us to discover life and to be assured that even in death, death will not have the final sting. God has made a new way through the chaos and the pain and the brokenness the groaning of creation and like a good shepherd he walks with us through it all he guides us and cares for us helping to take us to places that will be good for our souls so be assured he did not send it to you be assured he is with you in it be assured he is as we have sung this morning so wonderfully already he is faithful Uh, To summarize all of that, Dallas Willard says this in The Allure of Gentleness, God is not the agent of suffering. He does not do evil. He knows better. God is not the one who is sending suffering in any shape or form. That is the enemy's domain. It's the work of the evil one, the Satan, who has sunk the world and creation to this low. That is the echo of the fall that still reverberates through to today's age. It's in our systems, it's in our relationships, it's in our literal bodies, it's in all of creation. But as Willard says, God knows better. Back to this misquoted scripture where we're dealing with at the start of today. God will not give you anything you can't handle. Point two I want to make is this. Have you noticed how this is just yet another moment that's speaking more about us? The statement just talks about us yet again. It only tells more of our desire for comfort. It shows us yet again, we are the ones who want to want to avoid pain. We want to get through suffering. We want to move on. We want to leave it in the rear view mirror of our lives. Acting like it shouldn't happen or it didn't happen. Fundamentally, this is us yet again trying to escape our way out of our fallen, sinful nature, the groaning that needs redemption, but doing it as easily as possible. We are adverse about adversity. We want to avoid suffering at all costs, but the Bible does not avoid suffering. It has a lot to say about it. The Bible is set in a suffering story of suffering people. 
There's Old Testament character after character after character that God works with them through their adversity and through their lack. There's the people of God who were themselves slaves in Egypt and exiled in Babylon. There's the psalmist who cried out to God, confessing that in his despair, God was his help and his refuge, a presence in ever time of trouble. What about Jesus who said to his disciples, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. You will suffer for my name, but my peace I give you. What about Paul who told us that we should share in Christ's suffering and do so with joy? The Bible is not adverse about adversity. So why are we? Why are we trying to avoid it at all costs? Now, I'm not saying we should go looking for suffering like modern day martyrs. I'm not sending you out there to go find some suffering this afternoon. I must find some suffering. And I'm not saying we should swing the pendulum to the other side so we sort of start like a self-pity campaign. And I'm also not saying that we should roll over and just accept all situations that we may find ourselves in as fatalists. I'm not saying that. What I'm trying to say today is that the Christian story has existed with some good news. And for 2,000 years, this has been the good news. The good news is, behold, amongst the groaning, the suffering of creation, God is on the mission of renewing all things. God is with us amongst this adversity and this suffering. And in this, peace is knowable, hope is learnable, and joy is possible. Jesse is pumped. (laughs) And a flourishing life is one where we can take the experiences of all that we experience, all of them, the good ones and the bad ones. This series has not just been trying to name good things, it's been trying to talk about deep things also. And to seek that we would live in these things transformed amongst them into a new person. John Ortberg says this, and I think it's just stunning. God isn't at work producing the circumstances you want. God is at work in bad circumstances producing the you he wants. So I propose a new scripture for us today. One that's actually in the Bible. So please stand with me for the reading of scripture. Romans chapter 5. Verses 1 through to 5, and this is the word of God for us today. No tricks this time. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have, been, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they develop, help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. This is the word of God for us today. And the people said, grab a seat. I 
I just want you to note what's going on in the scripture here. Let me just put a little diagram up here. Firstly, it talks about the fact that we have received from Christ the work that Christ has done. We've received it as a gift. And secondly, we now get to stand in the reality of that. We, we place ourselves in the reality of that. That is now what we stand upon. And then it says, and we are set on a path of transformation, of becoming like Christ, becoming like what he has us destined to be. All that plays out in this life. All that plays out now in real time. You are becoming somebody. And this is the person you are to become. Like Jesus, if Jesus were you. When we say here at Central Vineyard that that's what we want to be, we want to be people who are centered on Jesus, that's our fundamental belief. We are all called to become like him. We want to be like him. And all of this in the scripture is playing out in a certain type of context, and the context is adversity. It's the context of problems. It's the context of struggle. It's the context of when things are not going to plan. And did you notice what Paul said here? He said, when you find yourselves in there, when you run into problems, you actually have got a transformation pathway. Firstly, you're going to learn how to endure. You're going to learn how to be patient and resilient. And in that, in doing that, there's a byproduct. The byproduct is you will develop character. And in that, there is a byproduct. The byproduct is you will develop hope. There's actually a transformation going on when we're in those places. The point here is this. In times of adversity, we can be transformed. Now note, I have not said there that the problem is transformed. Sometimes it is, other times it isn't. I think we'll all know those moments in life where the problem is just the problem. No matter how hard we shove it, no matter how hard we press, no matter what we try and do, the problem just is what it is. No matter how much we keep trying to kick and scream and wish it wasn't so, it will not seem to budge. Which is why this scripture is so fundamentally important for us to talk about today. We have to understand correctly what's going on in Romans right here. In times of adversity, when we kick and scream and shove and push and do all that we can do to change the situation, the situation doesn't change. What changes? We do. We can become different people. We can become people who are literally opposite to that problem. We can become people who are joyful amongst anguish. We can become people who are hope amongst hopelessness. We can become people who are steady in times of chaos. Now, this doesn't mean that we just sort of go off onto some other planet. We become deniers of pain or, or we become ambivalent about being empathetic towards other people. We are still called, like the scriptures say, to weep with those who are weeping and to laugh with those who are laughing. But we can be in the presence of things that are hard as different people. We can be agents of peacemaking. We can be agents of healing. We can be the people who live a transformed story into the reality of that situation. I believe that with every fiber of my being because I'm currently living in that story with someone who I dearly love. This is my dad. His name's John Sheed. And for nearly 25 years, he's pastored a church. Just before all that, he was a mechanic owned his own garage down in Dunedin and spent his days fixing cars. And then God invaded his life radically when I was 12 years old and we pursued the call that God had put on his life and ever since then it's been no looking back. He has been trying to serve God by serving people and pastoring his church. 
And the last couple of years of serving his church have been incredibly hard. Pastoring a church in a rural context of New Zealand during COVID was absolutely soul-breaking for a lot of pastors around this country. And it nearly killed them. Earlier this year, and I think it was February, it might have been March, uh, I got a call from my brother. One of those calls that was one of distress and a really important call. Uh, my dad that week had had a mental breakdown. My dad loves cars. Cars are his happy place. And while he was in New Plymouth after a really hard couple of weeks where a lot of things had been happening, my dad was sitting in an automatic car at a set of lights trying to push in the clutch, not knowing where he was, not knowing where he was going, not knowing what was going on, sitting at a light trying to put the clutch in on a car that a clutch doesn't exist of. And then, and then a car pulls up next to him and like honks. He's like, are you all right? You know, what's going on? And dad's just absolutely losing the place. He's, he's, he's having a breakdown. And he gets, manages to um, get through the, the lights that he's missed change a few times and pulls over and he tries to collect himself and, and he uh, manages to pull himself together enough to, to, to get himself ready to see the doctor. And he goes and sees the doctor that afternoon. And the doctor says, John you are burnt out your body is literally telling you right now that you are burnt out you are fried you are fried all around the globe pastors are burning out there's um there's stats done by barna who are a research group research group in america who found that in 2021, 42% of pastors wanted to walk away from what they were doing. Last year, really encouragingly, that number's dropped to 38%. 38% of pastors don't want to do this anymore because so much stuff was projected onto them over what was one of the most adverse times that the world suffered over the last couple of years. And I reckon today I'm sort of scratching at some of you and your vocations and you're feeling the same. Maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're in the medical sector, public servant. I don't know where you work and I don't know what everyone's situations are, but I bet some of you are thinking that sounds a lot like the field I work in too. There's a lot of people that have hit a wall during these last couple of years. My dad was one of them. For the last couple of months, we've been walking the journey with my dad as he has uh, been put on medical leave, emergency medical leave completely down-tooled, removed himself from his community, basically shut the door for his own good and put a whole new set of things around him to start healing and mending and getting better. It's been quite a ride for a couple of months. One of the things that um, walking with my dad in this has, has led to is that I've become a bit more of an avid reader of burnout material, trying to find out what's going on and I've shared a few things with my dad. We've attended a few online um, teachings and things and we've kind of talked to each other afterwards after watching the Zoom calls as we've kind of picked our way through the notes of the things we've learned and picked up on. And it's been interesting to learn about burnout. What is burnout? Well, firstly, burnout is not tiredness. It's not exhaustion. And burnout is not being stressed. If you're feeling tired or exhausted or stressed, you're not actually in burnout. You're tired, exhausted, and stressed. 
What burnout is, is burnout is when our body, especially in our mind, can no longer handle living in that reality, those symptoms, for an extended period of time without two things. Thing number one is a sense of reward that being in this place is worth it. Being adequately rewarded, feeling good that you're even having to be in there. And number two, living without the power to change or control the outcome. And when you find yourself living in a space of high stress and you're tired and you're exhausted and you have no reward and you have no sense of being able to have dominion and change the outcome, you're going to start living into burnout pretty quickly. You'll find yourself without energy to form new relationships. You might become more reclusive. You might not have the drive to do anything fun or to do anything different out of the norm. You might become increasingly pricklier around people. You might become quicker to lash out in defense. You might become more argumentative. You might only see your side of things and become less empathetic towards others. All of these are symptoms that you're starting to travel along the road of burnout. You are frying the circuits. You're not healthy. You might find yourself unable to make a decision. You know, first it might just be the really big decisions that seem really daunting, but eventually you'll get to the point where you can't even make small choices. When the doctor sat down with my dad, this was the metric he pulled out to in front of my dad. He said, John, how long since you made a decision? And my dad quickly went through the Rolodex of his mind and he realized it had been 14 months. 14 months since he'd made a decision. And then the doctor just looked at my dad and he said, John, as long as it's taking you to get into this, it's going to take you to get out. You've got a big road ahead. We might start by just realizing that some of these things are true for us today. And the reason I'm talking about it and the reason we're talking about it is because I don't want you to be sitting at the lights trying to push in the clutch of a car that doesn't have one. That is not the flourishing life. That's not the life Jesus has for you. So, how can we transform the journey when we're walking through this stuff? How can we transform the journey and the experience of burning out? I'm going to share on some bigger things in a few moments, but I wanted to start here while we're talking about it. Um, Research experts offer some really helpful things for the specific area that I think are worth taking on board today. Firstly, we need to rewrite scripts. You know, we are all living right now with an internal script going through our mind. Things that keep saying to us, this is the kind of person you are meant to be. If if you don't do this, no one else will. Uh, I'm meant to do this, dot, dot, dot. Um, I should do this or else people will feel let down, dot, dot, dot. Like these are the things that run through our minds. And it's no wonder we end up with things like workaholism or perfectionism or another kind of horrible-ism. And we get stressed in the environments we find ourselves in. We have an internal script that we cannot measure up to. And we need to rewrite that script. And here's how it can look. It can start by looking at um, a couple of simple scriptures and just holding them deeply for a long time. I am the beloved of God. No matter what I do, I am loved by him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I'm not in control of everything. Be free from that pressure. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I'm not in control of everything. Rewrite the script. Rewrite the script. Rewrite the script. I'm not God. I'm not the Savior. I don't have to perform here. We need to start rewriting our internal script. 
Secondly, we need to re-architect our day and our diaries to reflect walking towards that script. We need to literally reorganize our time so we have the right balance of work and reward, so that we have time being spent and then time being in control. Uh, you know, if, if you were in a horrific accident and you were burnt all over your body, you wouldn't then just carry on with life afterwards. You would be expected to take time to properly heal. And after experiences like this, your brain has gone through that kind of trauma. Your brain literally needs to heal. It needs to, you can't just push through. You need to set aside a whole new place to go and heal and get better. You can't just push on. You need to mend. And so you need to re-architect your day and your diary to reflect that journey. You need to start to actually make space for your brain to heal again for the script to be rewritten, for the chemicals to rebalance. Thirdly, you need relationships that are not sapping. Last week, Ella did a terrific talk on this about having deep relationships. We need a few people in our lives who are the right people. People who we do not have to perform around, people who we do not have to get the approval of, people who are the inner court people you can be fully you with exactly as you are unmasked and true broken and all no one you need to perform for someone you can truly be you with you need relationships that are not sapping not someone who needs to expect anything of you fourthly the researchers say this we need a hobby you need a hobby you need a life-giving task and here is the metric for a life-giving task guys this is gold a life-giving task is something you do, and as you do it, you lose a sense of time. While you do that thing, suddenly the clock ticks and you just don't even know where the time went. That is a good hobby. For some of you, that's playing a musical instrument. For some of you, that's getting out for a walk. For some of you, that's picking up certain things in your home and working with them and fixing them. I don't know what yours is, but whatever it is that helps the clock to just disappear on you, that is a good thing to keep doing a bit of. And my dad for the last several months has spent that time on medical leave and he's journeyed hard through some of these things and with a lot of prayer and with a lot of um, petitioning of the Lord as well, bolted onto this as well, he is living in a transformation of his experience. Uh, a couple of months ago, my dad was moved off his emergency medical leave just onto sabbatical and he was given the dignity of just getting to rest for a few months. And so he's not on an emergency moment anymore. He's still not himself and he's still healing. He's still getting better. But my goodness, he's come a long way. When I flew in to see him after my brother made that call, I flew, I flew in to see him straight away. And when he came to pick me up from the airport, he looked like he was a soldier returning from war. I'd never seen my dad like that, ever. He was frail and I was scared. But when we saw him last week, on the last week of the school holidays, he was kind of that big papa again. And I'm so glad that God has been doing this work of transforming his experience, of making him a little new again. I rang him this week and I asked him if I could share all of this. I got his permission first. He said I could. You'll be glad to know that. <laughs> but the one thing he said to me was this. He said, uh, the one thing I'd say if I was you, Dan, is that this has not just been my journey. It's been your mum's journey too. She's been with me in it all. And as, a, as I have got well, so she has as well. And I think it was just a reminder I needed to hear. Our journeys are never just our own. We're never just the only ones affected. 
because they're actually shared with those who we love and who love us. So when we burn out, we're not the only ones who get hurt. When we're going through adversities, we're not the only ones battling. We're not an island. We're not alone. And that's the first lie that the enemy will always try and tell you. That's the first lie that will always show up in the back of your mind. You're alone. It's the first lie from the liar. You deserve this. Well, don't listen to that lie. Don't listen to what's being whispered in your ear there. That is not of God. That's the enemy doing what the enemy does. Be courageous and seek to transform this. The flourishing life is not one of becoming emotionally and relationally reclusive and disappearing out the back door. That is not flourishing. Flourishing is to become fully loved and known, to lean into love, to be with those who are dearest to you. That, that is a flourishing life. And so I just want to add a few more thoughts to some of those earlier ones on how we can transform our experiences to live further into love, for that is the goal. Firstly, acknowledgement is the beginning of healing. Acknowledgement is the beginning of healing. You know, we have to come out of hiding. We have to say, I need help. I need some transformation. So there's a few spaces in which we can do this. There's a few things we can do. Firstly, we can confess to God. We can open up to God. We can, we can sit down in prayer and be a true psalmist. None of this faking stuff. We can be a true psalmist. We can tell God in brutal honesty how we are really doing. We can be completely honest with him. He can take it. Oh my goodness, he can take it. Do you know, if you spent the year reading the, the, the book of Psalms and that was the only scripture you read, if that was all you did for the whole year, I think what you get to the end of the year do and, and, be, and conclude is this. I'm allowed to be a lot more honest with God than I have, I have been. <laughs> Seems God can take it. We can confess to God, we can acknowledge to God, I need help. Uh, we can bring openness to a close friend. Again, those deep relationships I spoke of before, those who are in the inner circle of your life. Someone who is, not emotion, uh, someone who is emotionally well enough that they know that they're not going to um, have to fix your problem or, or be the saviour. You need to go to a person who's emotionally savvy enough to know that they don't have to kind of fix this thing so, so that they feel good. Someone who's going to be stable and solid and grounded and caring, be able to look after you in that space. Be close to a friend and open up to them. Uh, another space that you can uh, acknowledge this is in pastoral care. Our church has a pastoral care space. We have a space where you can come and you can talk with uh, Alicia in particular, who is our pastoral care um, pastor in this church. And, and, and in that space, you can just be open. Now, now, Alicia's not going to fix your problems. Alicia's not going to wave a magic wand and suddenly it's all passed it away. But she will be safe and caring and kind and faithful. And she will reach into believing for God to work in your life when you feel like you potentially can't. Pastoral care might be a place for you to acknowledge. And lastly, um, you can book a counseling session. You can go and talk with the professionals who have given their lives to make spaces to look after you when you find yourself in these places of adversity and suffering. 
You can acknowledge it by talking to a trained professional. Secondly, hope can be learned. Hope can be learned. You know, that passage in Romans tells us today, it's possible to learn hope. We can, through a series of situations and spaces, we can develop hope as a result. Hope, hope is not static. Hope is not binary. It's not just flick it on, flick it off. Hope is like faith and love. It grows. It's, it, 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 actually, it actually takes time to blossom and to bloom. In fact, I think it's even more helpful to think about it. It's, it's like a muscle, a muscle that needs to grow and be strengthened. And adversity can be a pathway to deeper growth. Ortberg says this in the book, The Me I Want to Be, something happens to us amid adversity. One line of thinking is that adversity can lead to growth. Another line of thinking is that the highest levels of growth cannot be achieved without adversity. It may be that somehow adversity leads to growth in a way that nothing else does. Hope can be learned, says Ortberg. You know, in the spaces of pressure, just like diamonds need pressure to be formed, so it is with hope. Hope can be formed in our lives. The best diamonds come about from great pressure. I don't wish that pressure on any of us. But we need to be honest that it's there. Third thing, we gain a bigger perspective. You know, as an apprentice to Jesus, we, we are invited to see the world differently. As an apprentice to Jesus, we are, seen, we are invited to see the world beyond this age. We're invited to see a future and a hope. The hope is that Jesus is renewing all things. Something far more glorious than this moment we find ourselves in. A little word for this moment. This is not the best yet. The best is yet to come. Come on. I love how Dallas Willard says this. We get a little taste of the future in this life. A little taste of the future. When we move into the future, and the future is good, the past, which was unbearable when we went through it, now takes on a different quality because it's part of the larger whole. It's the greatness and goodness of God that matters. Even David Hume, who is well known for his skepticism, says this, if your God is big enough, there is no problem of evil. That's the key. It affirms that in our lives, and we can go on from that and experience the goodness of God as we face each new day. We can live with a greater perspective, a greater why, a greater future. And I am absolutely convinced that there's one last piece as well. We live our lives in ordinary time. I know for many of you, you won't be sitting here today being like, I'm really resonating with adversity and suffering, Dan. And that is good. Maybe you're finding yourself just in ordinary time. Life is pretty good. Life is okay. That's wonderful. That is great. But I'm convinced from years of being in the game now that one of the best practices that we have in our kite to consider how we go about transforming our experiences is living our ordinary lives aware of two great practices of, of, the, of the church and of, of life with God. 
Practice number one is our work. And practice number two is our rest. Learning how to live in a good rhythm of these two things. You know, have you ever listened to a band, not a good one, but a band full of people who are learning their craft? Musicians who are still in learning mode with L plates on. And they might start the song off well, but within a few bars, the thing sort of starts to fall apart. And the drummer starts to lag behind. Maybe the drummer accidentally counts to five one bar rather than just four, and then it's all starting to really turn to custard. The song falls apart. It falls out of step. And this is what it is to live in rhythm well. We live in step well. Rather than living in a dissonant song, in a dissonant life, things will feel harmonious and good. So, We need to work well, we need to rest well. This is good timekeeping. And this is a good way of transforming our experiences of ordinary time for those moments when things aren't going so well. Um, In Exodus, it says this, when God was um, telling us to Sabbath and to rest, he also issued us a command to work. You shall work for six days. Work is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. It's not a dirty word, it's not a bad agenda. God is not scoffing at work like, oh, I can't wait to get rid of that. Work is God's idea. To work is to contribute and to put our hands creatively to joining God as the creator. Uh, Galatians 6 says this, pay attention to your work for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Or in Thessalonians, it says this, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands. (laughs) What a picture. That's a beautiful picture. John Ortberg says this, God wants to meet you in your work and your work is a service to God. Work is a form of love. We cannot be fully human without creating value. And so a question I just want to ask today as we start to land this today. Have you stopped and actually thought lately, what are my motives for my work? What is this all unto for me? You know, what feeling comes into your body as you think of your job? What feeling rises up? Do you need to do some work there as you keep working with that with God? What does it look like for you to work in a way where you're working in flow, a task that that brings you life, where every cell of your body suddenly comes alive? What would it look like to, as the scriptures say, work for Christ? Just some questions to ponder. These are things that matter. And as much as we have to work well, the last one is we have to also rest well. And I don't think a single practice from the life of Jesus in the last decade has has done as much work in my life of transforming my life as Sabbath has. Sabbath has has transformed my life. It has transformed my marriage. It has transformed my relationships. It has transformed my work. It has transformed everything about who I am. It has been an absolute game changer for me. It's absolutely changed the way I see God, the way I show up to church. It's changed the way I go about living my diary. Sabbath is four things. You have to stop, you have to rest, you have to delight, and you have to worship. All four of those things together is Sabbath. Not just one of those things, all four of them. You stop, you rest. It's different to stop and to rest. Those are two different things. You delight, you do something joyful, and you worship, you encounter God. All four of those things together, and you're Sabbathing. For six days of the week, I work, but for one day, 
I Sabbath. I, as um, Walter Brueggemann puts it, I resist to be defined by my production. (sighs) That'll preach. Today, I'm aware many of you are Sabbathing. You're here because it's your Sabbath. Uh, I don't get to Sabbath on Sunday because today is a work day for me. I Sabbath on Fridays. Friday is my day to stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. But today, I hope that as you are here, and as you come to these gatherings, and as you participate in this, I hope that those four things start to emerge as important things to you as you do this today. I sincerely hope that today, Sunday, is a holy day, a day set apart from those other six days, a holy day, an other day for encountering God. Because a day like today can transform a week. A day like today can transform our experiences. A day like today can change things. And so just to jump back into that burnout research of earlier, I hope that today is a day where you do some things where you lose sense of time. I hope that that's a marker you could pin to your Sabbath. It's a day to lose sense of time as I do good things. So those are some helpful things, I hope. That's some ways to transform our experience. Could have done a lot longer list, but those are enough for today. So let me just close. I want to close by um, just pondering on a couple of things I've said just a little deeper, just for a few moments. You know, as I called my dad this week, and as I told him that I was going to be doing this talk and some of the stuff I've been reading and researching, I told him this Ortberg line. I said, God isn't at work producing the circumstances you want. God is at work in bad circumstances producing the you he wants. Do you know what my dad said? That's a good line. (laughs) And he sort of just chuckled. And it was that sort of chuckle that as his son I know is a chuckle that sort of says, I know that to be true. (laughs) That's true. That is wisdom. And so a man who I love deeply, who has for a few months now been living a deep transformative experience. I just want to say again to you, as, as, the, as the church gathered today, I want to just highlight this line, this quote. And I want to say, a man who I love, who is walking transformation, thinks that that is a good line. Please pay attention to it. Please note it. Please remember it, file it away for the day when it's not working for you. Oh, that's right. In this circumstance, God wants to transform me. And that's the work of God. All right, let's go. God wants to transform us to be the people that he wants us to be. And he'll use anything at hand to do so. It's not that he sends the bad stuff, but he does use it. It's not that he wishes suffering on any of us, but he does redeem it. So whatever circumstance you are finding yourself in or one that you may find yourself in in the future, I want you to know and remember some important words today. In times of problems, lean in that it would help to develop endurance in your life and that that endurance would form into character and that that character would form hope. Because as John Ortberg said, you can learn hope. And the key line, this hope will not lead 
to disappointment. This hope will not lead to disappointment. 